This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Celebration Dinners, Frank, and we have a lot to celebrate around this office this week. But before we get to that, what is your favorite when, when it's the big celebration night in the Coley house? What is, what's the celebration food in your house? Well, the, the Coley's, the, the parents, the, the padres, they, they like to go out to a nice steak dinner, pretty traditional, you know, celebratory dinner. I like a little creme brulee uh, dessert when I'm, when I'm going to, you know, go crazy and, and celebrate. But uh, the, the, the household writ large, today's the first day of school, Joe. So tonight will be a celebratory dinner in the Coley nice. household. Celebrate nice. first day of school. I went out and got donuts for them to get the day off to, you know, to make it special. And we will be having, wait for it, guests. Chick-fil-A will be the celebratory dinner uh, for the for the young Coley. So we we have a celebratory dinner tonight, Chick-fil-A. But I thought I thought Wednesday night was Chick-fil-A for the little Colitas. Yeah, it's, it's back-to-back this week. We're, we're getting oh crazy. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Well, you hit nail on the head for me. I like a nice steak. I enjoy making it. I enjoyed it, the, the ritual of being out on the grill making the steak. I do a pretty good steak. I mean, it's not, you know, Fleming's, you know, cap grill quality steak, you know, but I make a pretty darn good steak. And what we are celebrating is our 300th podcast episode of Working Lunch Frank. 300. We've been doing this for years, man. That's a lot of Keith offering Coley out there in yeah. cyberspace. Nobody, <sighs> nobody really needs that, to be honest with you. That's just way too much of me. I like me a lot, and that's, that's way too much of me, but... I guess some people listen, so we'll, we'll keep at it. We'll keep at it. And on that happy note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, we're joined by Sean Kennedy, the Executive Vice President of Public Affairs for the National Restaurant Association, to bring us up to speed on the epic ongoing battle in California facing all restaurant operators and how the next few months will play out legislatively and politically. And speaking of the NRA, Sean's colleague down the hall, Mike Watley, the Vice President of State Affairs and Grassroots Advocacy, We'll walk us through the efforts underway in D.C. that could essentially codify service charges. We'll also talk about the ramifications of this week's ballot initiative in Ohio and how it may impact the pending measure to increase the minimum wage and eliminate the tip credit. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Cohen. Franklin, we've got a big show today. we got a couple of good interviews. We are interviewing... The grand poobah of the restaurant world, Mr. Sean Kennedy, and our state and local poobah, Mr. Mike Watley, on a variety of issues. We got a pretty good all-star lineup for our 300. As is appropriate. All right. Well, Sean uh, is going to talk to us about what's going on, both the, the macro picture in California with the uh, all the events, the ballot initiative, industrial way, uh, welfare commission, and so forth, and as well, some of the big doings in D.C. So let's get to that interview. Well, as our listeners know, over the last six months, it seems like California has been uh, an outsized uh, subject on this podcast. So much thing, so much going on with joint employer, the FAST Act, ballot initiatives, uh, and, and it's kind of coming to a head uh, recently in California. So uh, no other place when it's coming to a head than to go to the head. And we have the head of public affairs for the National Restaurant Association, our good friend, Mr. Sean Kennedy, joining us to help us sort it out. How, hey, pal, how are you doing? I'm well, Joe. I'm thinking about, I'm dating myself, but I'm thinking about uh, the Brady Bunch and when Jane was so frustrated that all the attention was on her big sister and she said, it's always Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And I think you are right. We are moving into all we, all, all you and I end up doing is saying California, California, California. I mean, we're 20 seconds into a conversation. We already have a Jan Brady reference. You know, it's going to be a good conversation at that point. You know it's going to be good. All right, my friend. So a lot of moving parts in California. Our, our listenership is pretty consistent, so they know a lot of, uh, of the, uh, the background and what's been happening over the last uh, few months. 
But the real question is, what are the next couple of months look like? Like where, where's, where's the puck now? And to quote Mr. Wayne Gretzky, where's the puck going? That is sort of the interesting part about this. We had uh, the industry picked up a decent sized win when the California legislature went into recess in that um, 1228, the uh, AB 1228, the joint employer measure wasn't reported out of committee. They held it back. They were going to vote on it. They did not. Now, in theory, there are rules in the California legislature that say it's you can't bring it up the rest of this calendar year. Uh, for, for unexciting process reasons within the California legislature. Now, those can be waived, but it requires a little bit of work. Uh, so does that mean that 1228 is dead for the year? Um, it's sort of a Friday the 13th situation, as we keep doing on pop culture. We are not going to, we can't afford to assume that it is down for good. So although technically it can't be brought up, we are still treating this as very much uh, a live grenade. We've got a fly-in that's going to be occurring in Sacramento, bringing franchise owners, franchisors uh, to try to speak truth to power and really walk through the Senate as to what this impact this would have. So the the you know as, as we play this ballot this ballot game ballot measure game, you know I, I know that the there's some some interfamilial feuding, feuding if you will going on on the union side. They've got other priorities as a, as a community on the 2024 ballot. And I think there's some, you know, concern from the SCIU that uh, there might not be the resources available uh, to them to adequately push back on this ballot that the industry has, 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 has qualified for in 2024 and all of a sudden has re-energized their zeal in going back to the bargaining table and or uh, pulling out the big guns, i.e., resurrecting the Industrial Welfare Commission. What 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 is going on in that ballot initiative space vis-a-vis the industry? So on AB two fifty seven, the Fast Act, uh, the referendum is it's still on the ballot. It's still going to be on the November twenty twenty four ballot. It was a lot of work from National Restaurant Association groups like the International Franchise Association as well. And you're right that SEIU has got a very crowded plate of things that they need to play on in California. Uh, There's a Taxpayer Protection Act that would have tremendous impact on their ability to uh, on on the due structure that they rely on. So they are they've got a perfect storm of a lot of measures that they could be playing either offense or defense on. California is not an inexpensive state. It's a very expensive state to run these campaigns. So they are looking at picking and choosing, I suspect, uh, which ones they want to, to focus on. 1228 is obviously not on the ballot yet. I don't think it's um, outside the realm of comprehension to say, will, it, will, will restaurants, will franchisors be looking at adding it, trying to add it to the ballot uh, if, it, if, if AB 1228 passes? Yes. That's not an inexpensive plan either. It's going to cost a lot of money, and it's that's got an, it's it's uncertain as well. Our strategy right now on twelve twenty eight and joint employer is to keep this bill from being being considered in the Senate, or to see it defeated uh, on an up or down vote in the Senate. So, Sean, one of, one of the things that that strikes me, you know, again, we talk a lot on this podcast, and you know, with with you and and others about sectoral bargaining and the rise of sectoral bargaining. You know, one of the challenges that the industry has, you, you being the face of the industry, one of the challenges uh, of the many on your plate is that as we bite off sections of law, the joint employer piece affects a segment of the industry. The FAST Act uh, uh, affects a segment of the industry. Tip credit elimination affects a segment, segment of, the elimin- uh, of the industry. How do you as our leader make the case that if you're a table service restaurant, you should still worry about the fast act. How do you make the case to a quick service outfit that tip credit nomination, they should worry about that too. I mean, how do you, how do you keep all the, all of your rowers rowing in the same direction? I think a lot of it is, restaurants, if they're not competing for the same kind of customer, they're certainly competing for the same kind of employee. So if you're an independent taco place, two blocks away, there's probably a QSR chain taco place. 
up the street, there's probably a full service Mexican restaurant that's all roughly looking for the same kind of qualifications and the same kind of skills from an employee. If suddenly the FAST Act raises wages for that QSR chain employee, what's going to happen? You know, they're immediately going to start the, 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 their neighbor to the left and their neighbor to the right is going to say, hey, I hear that this chain's paying this. What does this mean for me? And maybe I should consider moving. And uh, Especially in a state with no tip credit like California. Exactly. So restaurant operators, I find, get that better than anything is they know that if it's de facto applied to only or de jure applied to only one uh, entity, one segment, de facto, it's going to apply to everybody. And uh, it will only be a matter of time where that standard becomes the, the, the prevailing standard. So, you know, it's, it's hard to prognosticate, but <clears throat> what, what do you think, what's our conversation? Today is, as we're taping this, August the 9th. If you and I are sitting here on November the 9th, what does the world look like? Vis-a-vis what's going on in Sacramento. I think on 1228, look, it's it's uh, we've got great turnout from the larger brands and the larger uh, franchise groups. The problem, the challenge on independent contractor is explaining it to the smaller franchise owners, the ones that only own two or three or four units, uh, what they don't because it doesn't immediately have the same. It's not as easy to explain as the FAST Act. The FAST Act is, do you want to be regulated with an inch of your life, basically a, a union put into your shop, and deal with uh, unreasonably high wages that will only affect you at a pace that's just not sustainable? And that's just a nightmare scenario, Joe. They get that. Explaining to them the impact if joint, if the joint employer rule of 1228 goes into effect, it's much more oblique. It's much harder. I mean, it completely changes how major chains look at their franchise model and what expectations they're going to have of their franchisees. The larger operators get it. Some of the smaller ones, it's just really hard to explain it in a way where they say, wow, I need to get involved. I need to take off time. I need to join the group uh, you know, uh, in, in, in Sacramento. That's been, our, that's been the biggest challenge that we're, we're dealing with right now. Um, we have a lot more on this. I'll do a quick plug for stopab1228.com is the one-stop shop. So if folks want to learn more or if they want to get involved or if they want to add their voice, stopab, as in assembly bill, stopab1228.com is the place to go. But it is getting, it's getting that turnout in there. Right now, I don't think that 1228 has the votes. But if SEIU turns up the heat another notch, I think it's 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 incredibly close right now. It's incredibly close. And as I understand it, in, a, in just a few weeks, a week or two from now, you and your sidekick, Mr. Watley, and your Sacramento sidekick, Mr. Jot Condi, are throwing a little powwow uh, for the industry in, in a couple of weeks to get folks out and into Sacramento talking about this, correct? I think the fly-ins are absolutely critical. Uh, it's It's one thing for a lobbyist for a chain to uh, speak to an elected. But as you know, uh, kind of the all politics is local could not ring more true when it comes to this industry. And what operators really want to hear is not only the large, well-known brands, but those smaller brands. They want to hear that even the brands they haven't even heard of, they only have, you know, not that many units, that this completely destroys their ability to uh, function in the state of California and to serve the community. I, I, you know, I'm dating myself, but you and I both have Hill experience. And I remember in my member of Congress that I worked from, I was from the DC suburbs. So getting constituents to show up in your DC office was pretty standard procedure since they lived within a few miles. But yeah. the first conversation every day was how are the phones? What are the locals saying? Who's on tap? And it was, it was always the local before the national. Uh, so Whatever whatever level of government that the, those those voices on the ground matter, so uh, super yep. uh, super important. Um, Sean, real quick before we pivot to to Washington D.C., you and I talked at some length uh, over the course of the late summer, early fall, into the winter uh, about the ramifications of Fast Act and would we see, you know, copycats, if you will, in other states and. You and the NRA and your major change prepared uh, accordingly and kind of got proactive in a lot of markets. Do you think the 
industries, and, and, and we have not seen as much copycat activity as we once anticipated, which is a great problem to have. We were ready and it didn't come. So good for us instead of being not ready and having it coming. Um, but do you think the industry's performance in California, uh, the, the pushback, the ballot, had a, the, the chaos we created there had a chilling effect on the spread? I think it's too early to say that, Joe. I certainly think that we needed that. It was it was so important that we we that were that we were able to push back successfully in California. Um, but look, Mary Kay Henry, the president of the National SEIU, I mean, she's been very clear in this is the future of 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 organizing for her is in the service related industries like restaurants. We have a remarkably low unionized penetration rate. And we're both looking at that from uh, for both both the company and the uh, and unions are looking at that differently. SEIU says this is a great opportunity. We're saying we've got a great model that's working right now and that our workers feel like they have a voice and that they feel like they can uh, talk to their bosses and their managers about this. I have no doubt that they are going to that SEIU and other unions are going to continue to make replica fast bills a priority in other states. I think SEAU had to take their eye off the ball in a big way, and they have to keep their eyes on California and work through AB 257, work through that referendum, uh, work to defeat our referendum, and that's probably put them on a strategic pause for doing this in in other in other states. But uh, we, we are we have to be incredibly vigilant. I do not see this going away. Good, and and, and part of that vigilance will be that fly-in we talked about Wednesday. August 23rd, Sacramento, be there or be square. Um, it's going to be a big, important day for the industry on a, on a lot of important fronts. Sean, I know it's the dog days of summer in Washington, D.C. Last week, I think you had over 100 degree days and some kind of crazy stuff. Congress is out getting a phone call return from the 202. The only, the only, the only area code, the only calls I've gotten out of the 202 in the last week are from you and your organization. So kudos for you. You're not letting them <laughs> go away to the beach. But um there are some things happening. I know Congress is kind of out, but right before they left was some kind of some significant action on uh, an important issue that's taken a lot of your time recently, the swipe fee issue, the credit card processing fees. Joe, it always boggles everyone's mind when you make when I when I make a simple statement that small business restaurants and big business restaurants pay the highest swipe fees of any country in the industrialized world. And it's just shocking when you think about that, that the United States is the worst performance when it comes to swipe fees that continue to go up. They've doubled over the past decade uh, and they show no signs of abating. Only two competitors in the space, 80 percent uh, market penetration. So that's not going to change anymore. That duopoly is is uh, resulted in a world where the third largest expense for restaurants behind workers and behind uh, supplies is swipe fees. Uh, there is legislation, bipartisan legislation that we've worked with others to secure in the Senate. Uh, the Senate, before they adjourned, uh, Roger Marshall of Kansas, uh, working with Dick Durbin of Illinois, uh, Roger Marshall, Senator Roger Marshall announced that he had a verbal commitment that there will be a vote on this bipartisan legislation to inject competition into the swipe fee space before the end of the year. I, I'm not saying we can take that to the proverbial bank, but it is a tremendous opening that he is getting that kind of commitment from the higher ups in the Senate. Banks are going to absolutely outspend the National Restaurant Association on this one. But the the popularity of banks is uh, such and the popularity of restaurants is such that we can really win on this one. So we've been spending a lot of time. We've got grassroots activations. There's a lot more we can do to try to move on this. We've got more on our website, restaurantsact.com. But it's going to be an interesting fight. I don't know if it will resolve this year, but we have really made a lot of, of progress. I'll throw on one last item. You normally think about the anti-bank crowd uh, as sort of the, uh, the, the the progressive end of the of the Democratic Party. So you're thinking about your Elizabeth Warrens or your AOCs or your Bernie Sanders. J.D. Vance of Ohio uh, came in, and he is an original co-sponsor of this bill. We've got Roger Marshall as well of Kansas. Uh, the, the J.D. Vance co-sponsorship means that this issue is sort of taking on a bit of an economic populism uh, tip. Main Street versus is, Wall Street. Exactly. Exactly. And once you have bipartisan 
disdain for what Wall Street is doing on that front. That's where you get so many openings for the main streets of the world, and that's what we're going to be counting on. Sean, you're such a wordsmith. I thought I was going to stop at duopoly. I love that. That's a great word. But disdain, <laughs> what another great word. I was thinking enmity. I have a, you know, been around the block a few times and, you know, every 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 industry and group's got to kind of put their angle and their spin and their perspective on things. But, you know, we we, we all work hard for credibility's sake to stay within the lines. Uh, the banks, the, the and this is just me, my personal opinion, you don't have to comment. I, they're egregious in the things that they say and the outright untruths. I, I just, I, I'm fascinated by things they're, they're made to do all over the world, especially in Europe, and pretend that they can't do here. When they're globally connected enterprises with operation in 70 countries, and they'll sit with a straight face and tell you why what they do in the rest of the world should not or cannot apply here. It's just, it's just, it makes I agree. Me, it makes with, me I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Uh, swipe fees are 10 times higher than what they are in Europe. 10 times. It's one thing if it was 50% higher, 120% higher. It is 10x. And they have and higher that, customer protection standards, higher yes. privacy standards. They have higher compliance standards than we do. And yeah. yet, you know, and here we still are. Re- and there are still rewards programs. Uh, so there's been mm-hmm. a lot of misinformation from the other side on this. We're cutting through. The most encouraging part is it doesn't matter if you're a quick service or a full service or an independent or anything in between or a food truck or a bar. This is your number three cost and it's not going away. And the only way it's going to move is if people engage and we get this legislation passed. Well, I know uh, I know you all and your coalition and your other organizations and uh, Merchant Payment Coalition, all the groups exactly. are working as hard, as hard as possible. And uh Godspeed, my friend. Well, um, anyway, I won't take more of your time, Sean. You were always very generous with it and a frequent guest on our Working Lunch podcast. It is much and this is co- happy. Congratulations. This is this is another milestone, correct? Our 300th Working Lunch podcast, my friend. When I started in the National Restaurant Association uh, in 2019, one of the things I asked everybody is, you know, what periodical should I be reading? What do you read every day? What should I be looking at? And I will say without without um, without lying that a lot of people said, are you on? Are you subscribed to Working Lunch? And I said, no idea what that is. And they said, you need to you need to be listening. And I've been a, a loyal listener ever since. So you, it's uh, congratulations. It really is uh, a testament. You all do such a great job sort of giving the Axios Politico playbook approach of not just giving the facts, but giving perspective. Um, and and, and I, uh, we all learn from it. We all truly do. So congrats uh, to you. Kind words, my friend. I appreciate that a lot. Appreciate that. And uh, all right, my friend. Well, I hope you get some time away from the office in August and go uh, Get uh, recharged before the you too. Before the, the 535, the herd comes back to DC, my friend. But uh, we're uh, ready. Anyway, safe travels. I really appreciate the time, the perspective, and as always, your incredible, incredible leadership of, of this industry. You are our, you are our general patent, and uh, we're very happy to have you, man. So I appreciate Joe, it. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Well, the two big issues going on in the industry right now uh, with most of the state legislatures out and Congress out are this pending, uh, well, it's not really a pending ballot initiative, but the initiative in Washington, D.C. that eliminated tip credit and how that's being implemented and a conversation the industry is engaging on with regard to service fees. And then lo and behold, this week, a ballot initiative in Ohio that may have significant ramifications for future industry-related ballot initiatives coming down the pike. And so who better to help us sort out what's going on in the 50 states and the Republic of Washington, D.C., my hometown, than Mr. Mike Watley, the Vice President of State Affairs and Grassroots Advocacy for the National Restaurant Association. Mike, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for thanks for having me back. And uh, a little birdie tells me that this is your 300th episode. So congratulations on a a long run. Here's to here's a 300 more. It's been great to see the podcast grow over time. It's a kind of a big day for us. And the NRA is twice your your sidekick, Mr. Kennedy, was on a previous segment and uh, passed along similar salutations. So it's very kind. You guys have been a big part of that and helpful to us uh, along the way. So appreciate that. So, Michael, let's talk Washington D.C. 
two big things happening in DC this summer. My Redskins got a new owner and prop 82 is <laughs> in the middle of being relitigated at the DC city council. Michael, so give us a state of play of initiative 82 in DC. The voters passed it. It's going to eliminate the tip credit. Um, and then the industry has said, well, maybe there's a way that we can stomach this a little better. And they've gone to the DC city council with a couple of proposals. Tell us kind of what the state of play is in DC. Yeah. Let's just talk macro for a second. And that DC, the tip credit's been a, a huge topic of conversation for, for at least you know, my entire tenure at the association and for you know decades beyond that. But DC has become the first jurisdiction to really move forward officially with a tip credit elimination policy in over 21 years at this point. The last state was California. So we haven't seen a 21 years. We haven't seen wow. a jurisdiction really, really implement this uh, in, in decades at this point. So well, we are watching Chicago closely. We are watching Chicago closely and others. And there, you know, there have been attempts to do it in the past that have been, you know, overturned, et cetera. But DC, it's going forward, it's happening, and it's a mess. I mean, what is happening in DC is bad for for customers and you see it in outrage in terms of costs going up it's bad for employees and it's bad for for operators and it's certainly going to be a a cautionary tale for the chicago's and other jurisdictions out there in terms of don't follow dc don't eliminate the tip credit because it's it's a mess and and one fair wage very much said you know this will happen and it'll be smooth and easy sailing and that that has not been the case however the industry in DC, the local industry, knowing that this is going into effect, is trying to figure out how to navigate forward and realizing that no matter what they do, they can't mitigate the entire ramification of Initiative 82, but they can try to mitigate it in certain ways. And so that's what you're seeing in terms of, of city council action. But you know, before we get into that, just the, the implications, I mean, we're hearing from Restaurant operators who are saying, I'm not going to open new locations in D.C. We're hearing anecdotally that operators are looking to open in the suburbs, be it Virginia, be it Maryland. Customers, there's a whole Reddit thread expressing anger at service charges. There's just a lot of not great conversation, negative consequences is happening in D.C. And we're only in the first, at this point, three or so months of this, this ballot initiative being implemented. So let's talk about service charges in general, uh, in terms of what is what's the industry saying in Washington DC? They're saying, hey, hey, government, help us in some way, figure out a way to offset some of this so we don't knock out half the restaurants that haven't even survived or fully back from the pandemic. I mean, Washington DC right now, we're still, the federal government is still not back in any meaningful way in terms of full-time working in offices down downtown. Restaurants are still hurting like crazy. This is a terrible time to be doing this, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at DC and with the federal government, so few office workers are back in town. I saw a recent uh, headline in terms of looking at offices nationwide and DC was at the bottom of the list in terms of uh, employees being back in the office. And I, you know, I can see it personally as a DC office worker who's downtown quite a bit. You know, you aren't seeing as many people out and about. It's hard to really find a spot to do a business lunch because restaurants just aren't seeing the demand. So you add all of that and then you take Initiative 82, which is a major, major increase in labor costs for restaurants. And it's a tough time. And restaurants are answering this by implementing service charges. It's really tough to go around D.C. and eat somewhere and not see a service charge. And that's because Restaurants are struggling to increase menu prices. Menu prices are already so high because of COVID supply chain issues and food price inflation and higher rent that simply just adding in more on the menu hasn't worked. So a lot of restaurants are looking at or have implemented service charges. And and that's been a major way that restaurants have attempted to at least try to cope with what's happening with Initiative 82. But we're only in the first couple of months of the implementation of Initiative 82, and it's already a mess. So it's hard to think what may happen in the coming weeks, months, and years here in DC. So, 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 update us on the on the current conversation with the restaurant community 
in D.C. and the D.C. city government with regard to service charges. So let's look at it two different ways, one in terms of the regulatory aspect and then secondly, legislative. So this week, uh, the D.C. attorney general came out with some clarifying advisory uh, kind of in collaboration with RAMW, which is the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington in D.C., to provide some real clarity in terms of how restaurants should position a service charge on their menus. Uh, The attorney general had previously issued a statement implying that many service charges were deceptive to customers because it wasn't clear how they were being implemented. So the AG plus RAMW work together and have issued a kind of a, a guide for how restaurants should, from an operational perspective, put service charges on their menus, even talking about like font sizes and what it has to say. And it's very clear in terms of restaurants, if they're going to have a service charge, must be upfront about it, must explain what it is, and also must explain who it goes to. That's the current kind of regulatory climate that you're seeing here in DC. And we've always said this, operators should be very transparent in terms of what a service charge is and who it's going towards. No one's trying to hide the ball here. If you're going to have to pay one, put it on the menu, make it clear. You're also seeing legislation, and this is legislation called Workers and Restaurants Are Priorities Act of 2023, or the RAP Act, W-R-A-P, which has been introduced in the DC Council. It will likely potentially see movement Uh, in the fall. And this is a number of things. It provides some clarity in terms of service charges and defines a service charge and says that a service charge must go towards um, employees' base wages. So it provides some clarity there. Um, It also would, and this is novel looking across the country, it says that a service charge would not be sales taxable um, in DC were this to go into effect. And it also looks at rent percentage calculations and says when landlords are calculating uh, kind of a business's income or revenue uh, to determine a base rent, they cannot include a service charge as a part of that. So both that concept and the sales tax concept are pretty novel looking across the country. Um, You know, it's Will they fix everything that Initiative 82 caused in D.C. from a harm perspective to restaurants? No. Would they help for those who are utilizing service charges? I think it definitely it would help. And there's one additional aspect of or two additional aspects of the legislation. One, it creates a public service campaign to help. Uh, and this is funded by D.C. tax revenue to help explain to customers what happened. There's so many questions. There's so much anger towards restaurants it would be a public service campaign to explain what happened with Initiative 82, why you're seeing higher um, higher service charges, higher menu prices, and that's a part of the bill. And then it also tweaks the schedule for what the minimum wage uh, or the tip credit elimination schedule looks like in D.C. And, you know, maybe you're not in a position to feel comfortable commenting on that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe there's going to be a big public hue and cry and pushback. Uh, I, I would, even as a, as a restaurant industry advocate and fan, I would have a bad taste in my mouth if I had to see that on my, on my already very expensive DC lunch or dinner. I, I think you definitely are going to have a pushback on, on service charges and, and things being, being more expensive in, in DC and time will tell. And we're studying this carefully as are others, but what does this mean? You know, we, we talk hypothetically about tip credit elimination and consequences. We're getting a real-time experiment in D.C. in terms of, you know, if you're getting a 20% service charge on a bill, are you tipping your usual 20% on top? That'd be a 40%, you know, quote-unquote tip. I don't think that many folks are going to do that. And if that's the case, employees' earnings are, are going to go down because there'll be fewer tips. Are people eating out less in dc either they're staying home or they're going to one of the suburbs because of dc being so much more expensive i i think that's very likely we'll see in the data in the coming weeks and months what we're seeing in dc is just a a culmination of the effects of the pandemic with tip credit elimination happening at the exact same time in a market that hasn't fully recovered because office workers aren't back yet so 
what we're seeing is impacting customers in terms of higher prices, is impacting employees in terms of potentially fewer tips and less earning potential, and also impacting operators, obviously, in terms of higher costs and just real challenges. So we've talked for a while about hypothetically, what does tip credit elimination look like in a jurisdiction? We're seeing what happens here in DC and you know, not only the impact, but also how are operators responding? What do service charges look like? And I would just say if I had one word to describe it right now, it's just, it's, it's confusion all around. Well, I, you know, I, I love our friends in the hotel industry and I'm close, but I, I, you know, they get a lot of grief from these resort taxes and putting deposits of, you know, we're going to set aside 300 bucks uh, while you, while you check in again for incidentals so I can make $300 worth of interest. You know, I just, it, it leaves a real bad taste in your mouth, but you know, foot, foot traffic, I guess consumers getting to the point where they're getting so beat down that there might not be a, you know, uh, we had a, we had a delivery at our house uh, last week. Uh, my daughter for lunch, $9 from Chick-fil-A. It was over $21 by the time all the fees were done. It was over twice as much and, you know, consumers are still doing it. So we'll see. I think there's going to be some pushback from blue jurisdictions on these service fees. I think we're opening up a can of worms here. That's going to be uh, reputationally bruising for us, but we'll see how that goes. Michael, let's switch to the great state of Ohio this week. Uh, last night, as you and I are speaking, uh, just 24 hours ago, voters in Ohio went to the, went to the polls. Uh, one of the things on the, on the, on the ballot was a provision that future ballot initiatives take a supermajority of 60% to pass and be enacted. We have a similar rule here in Florida. Uh, this is being pushed by large part by the red team and the blue team. Uh, I'm sorry, the red team to push back on progressive measures of the blue team. Um, didn't go that didn't go so well for the red team last night in Ohio. What happened? You know, there's a question one on the uh, August special election ballot in, in Ohio, and the vast majority of the headlines were about uh, abortion and what this would do for a constitutional amendment on abortion access uh, down the road. But what this ballot initiative did was it basically tightened requirements for ballot initiatives um, in Ohio, both on the front end in terms of kind of upping the requirements, upping the due diligence to get something on the ballot to make it a little more challenging so that you know, the, the, the pro side was saying, you know, it's too easy to get on the ballot, these are on the to the ballot. These are really important decisions. You should have to go through a couple more procedural steps to really get on the ballot, have more representative sample in terms of counties where you're collecting signatures and the overall thresholds. But then once you got on the ballot, as opposed to it being a 50% majority to pass, it would have to be a 60% majority to pass with the idea being, you know, ballot initiatives and constitutional ballot initiatives are really important and there should be a higher threshold. Again, all the headlines were about, you know, abortion and 2024 and all of that. But why this matters for the industry is that Ohio currently has uh, an initiative filed for the 2024 ballot that would raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour in the state, but also eliminate the tip credit. And if question one had passed, it would have been binding um, on this initiative for 2024 and would have had major implications there. With issue one not passing, it means the path to appearing on the 2024 ballot for that minimum wage tip credit initiative. Uh, it's the same as it was, but it, it, it's easier than it would have been. So we're definitely watching Ohio very closely in terms of that ballot initiative. We're also watching Arizona as well, which has a similar ballot initiative. Um, this issue, especially the tip credit issue, is going to be a very hot one in 2024, both legislatively, but also on the ballot. We're going to see it in very swing states like Ohio and like Arizona. So just so on the non-restaurant side, now it's going to be a lot easier. The, 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 we know the blue team is going to put an abortion issue on the ballot, right? In 2024. And it's going to, if this is any indicator, it's going to create a lot of blue votes coming out for that or leaning blue votes. And on that same ballot will be a minimum wage measure and a tip credit elimination measure. And, and the, the, abortion me the abortion measure may actually appear on the 2023 ballot. There's a little bit of kind of confusion okay. on that. But overall, I mean, you're 
what this did from an industry perspective is it pay, it, it kept the path pretty clear for yeah. it being easier to get a ballot initiative. And 2024 in Ohio, presidential year, critical federal issues. I mean, Ohio wasn't chosen randomly in terms of putting one of these initiatives on there. Neither was Arizona. They are, they are key federal jurisdictions. So it's definitely something the industry as a whole is going to have to watch because tip credit elimination in Washington, D.C., as challenging as it is, it's a different ballgame than tip credit elimination in a very big state like Ohio, which blends urban, suburban, rural. It's just it's a different situation. And we have a ton of restaurant, big restaurant companies based in Ohio. We probably got half a dozen or a dozen domiciled, you know, White Castle, Wendy, Sparrow, Bob Evans, you know, the list goes on. I'm sure if I thought about it for more than three seconds, I could list some more uh, big restaurant state. Uh, it's part of every every big restaurant company's not only growth you know, you know, existing platform, uh, but their but their growth plan as well. So, uh, industry is going to be if that thing makes it to the ballot, it's going to be it's going to be expensive. It's going to be expensive proposition for the industry in 2024. Um, Mike, lastly, you know the 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 Ohio rest the most of the business community um, support the measure to have to go to a supermajority for ballot me measures. You did see strong support from the business community. Again, trying to really separate it from the social issues conversation in terms of this is not about one particular subject or one particular issue. This is about how easy it is to get things on the ballot in Ohio and to change the constitution of Ohio. So you did see businesses get out there. It was definitely a challenging situation in terms of how to kind of talk about it in a way that didn't get you involved in the larger social conversation. But, you know, it would have been it would have made it more challenging to pass initiatives kind of like you see in, in Florida. Uh, but that didn't happen. So we definitely have a, a challenge on our hands going into next year. It's hard to separate the two. It's like, you know, being in the, you know, the Senate, you're going to vote for the rule to proceed to the floor. You know, you're, you're voting for that issue, right? right. You know, I mean, it's, it's de facto. It's hard to, it's hard to, you know, split hairs on semantics uh, that way. So it's going to be, uh, this is a big, big deal. I think in the restaurant world, the, the, the abortion issue was 99.999% of the conversation, but there's a huge ramification for 2024 for the industry. Uh, this would be a major jurisdiction to lose tip credit and uh, change. That would have major ramifications for, for the comfort companies in the industry. So something to watch. I know you will be at the uh, forefront of our national strategy, our state strategy to push back on that. Thank you, Michael. Uh, not only for coming on the pod for the 874th time uh, in 300 <laughs> episodes, but uh, thanks for your leadership in that space, man. We're, we're, we're lucky to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, until next time. All right, my friend, uh, go, go fight the big fights and we'll be there with you. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We're going around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. It's the middle of August, the dog days, but there's still some stuff going on in the wage world, especially at the local level. Let's go out west to Colorado. I mean, there's not a lot, but I'm still super surprised at how much there is. There's still activity. It's still bubbling everywhere. So, yeah, we'll start in, in Boulder County uh, and Denver, Joe, while we're at it. So Colorado is a little little bit of a, a hotbed heading into this, uh, you know, holiday period, this the the kind of fallen into the winters when you're likely to see activity in, in Colorado. So in Boulder, county commissioners unveiled their plan to raise the county's minimum wage to $15.70 an hour as of January 1. They're going to have a town hall meeting on the subject October 12th and a formal hearing on November 2nd. So the state has a tip credit of $3.02. So if this was passed in its current form, Joe, that is going to jump way up to 1268. That's a big deal. So, you know, if you're in the Boulder County area, you need to put those dates on your calendar. If this is an issue you, you care about, you probably should be talking to your commissioners and, you know, talk to your, your trade group, the Colorado Restaurant Association, find out what's going on, plug in any efforts they've got, they've got popping. So swinging over to Denver, Joe, the city announced it will raise the local minimum wage by $1 an hour in January 2024, setting the new wage at $18.29 an hour. 
The local law also uh, requires annual adjustments. So it's going to you know, bump up based on uh, CPI year after year. And the server wage will rise there to fifteen twenty-seven an hour. That's that's a big deal, Jeff. Franklin, I will be out in Denver, Colorado, in five or six weeks. Uh, my beloved Washington Redskins are playing the Broncos out there. So my annual Redskin trip, the, the group has decided early on this this spring that Denver was our trip. So uh, why do you why do you do this to yourself? I have to, I mean, it's, it's a pillow fight, man. You got to watch your guys, you know, no, no matter what it takes, but uh, I will be having a drink with the, the former longtime head of the Colorado Restaurant Association, Mr. Pete Mearsman, who has been very helpful in helping us set up this little, this little voyage. So fun stuff. Franklin, I was just out just last week in Los Angeles County and now it's making the news. Yeah. And you know, this is not uncommon these days in, uh, in Southern California. So LA County legislation was introduced for the county board to set up a $25 an hour minimum wage for hotel workers. That's for unincorporated parts of the county. The city of LA and Long Beach are also considering similar legislation. So, uh, you know, look, Unite here, hotel workers, $25 an hour minimum wage, um, and it would increase to $30 an hour, Joe, by 2028. So I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago when there was murmurs of it and it was like, yeah, yeah, 30, why not? Um, well, we now have legislation introduced and we'll, we'll see where this goes. That is just insane, but that's, that's where things sit right now in LA County. Franklin, you and I, you know, when, when you're trying to predict the future on stuff and look ahead, you, you know, you get it right sometimes you, you, you get it wrong sometimes, but one place that you and I have gotten it right over the years is predicting early on the impact that the kind of gig economy and Uber and Lyft would have on all types of business models. It gave birth to DoorDash and all this other stuff. And we were watching those wages long ago as an indicator of where the wage market was going. And uh, it continues on the city of Minneapolis setting, uh, moving forward with their, with their new wage for Uber and Lyft drivers. Yeah, expected to vote next week and uh, proposed ordinance there basically sets a minimum wage, uh, $1.40 a mile, uh, 0.51 or 51 cents per minute, um, or $5, whichever is greater. So it's kind of setting a, a floor for drivers uh, in the city. It would also, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, it would also require that drivers are provided essentially receipts with kind of the, the breakdown um, if I'm remembering correctly, there was some discussion over, you know, if you go in and out of the city line, what happens? And so I guess the receipt is going to break that down. Um, so anyway, in, in May at the state level, the governor vetoed a bill that would have, it was not the same, but but similar. It would have mandated higher pay and kind of set, set a wage floor uh, at the state level. He said that was not the right approach, although he agreed with the objective, it was not the right approach. So as we often see, Joe, you know, something stalls out at the state level, you now have kind of a rush of cities coming in to, to legislate on it. And that's that's what's happened here. Frank, before we leave the wage section, you know, you, you and I are, are geeks, geeks at heart and we love a good study. You had uh, noticed uh, some research done, uh, published this week by the National Bureau of Economic Research kind of, you know, not earth shattering, it makes sense, but kind of equating uh, higher wages and minimum wage increases with attendance at local community colleges. What's the, what is the gist of, of that study? So it's a working paper. Yeah. National Bureau of Economic Research. So, you know, obviously super legit and, you know, not, this is not some special interest group study, but yeah, to your point, Joe, I, I read this headline. I had to reread it like three times so with all these minimum wage gains, community college enrollment is down. So degree completion rates have largely stayed the same, but the pipeline has has become limited um, or, you know, constricted. So super interesting 
And, you know, and they really focused like a hyper focused on areas with kind of significant wage increases, those kind of blue cities and jurisdictions. And, you know, it's, it's your point. I was, I was most taken by the uh, graduation rates kind of staying similar, but those folks that kind of bounce in and bounce out of community colleges when, when times are tough or you're looking to upskill and, 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 you know, enhance your wage marketability uh, right now, they're bouncing out because, yeah, jobs are plentiful, wages are high, and they don't feel the need to go in and and, and spend a, a couple of semesters in community college, kind of building that that resume. Yeah, they 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 feel comfortable where they are. Um, I'm I'm assuming we're we're making some 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 leaps. You know, not all of this is necessarily bared out in the study, but you know, they're you assume that they're kind of workers are more comfortable where they are and they don't feel that pressure to upskill to go get that next job where they get a higher wage potentially. And so um, super interesting study. You know, we, we've talked for some time as all these, you know, we've we've embarked in this great social experiment with all these really steep, extreme uh, minimum wage increases over the past couple of years. And we don't really know what all the potential unintended consequences of those are. And Here's one that's starting to manifest itself, and I'm sure there will be more in, in the coming years. And Joe, there was another report, too, out of SHRM this week that uh, that also found interesting in, in minimum wage. And in that, it basically said that, I don't know how surprising this is, just interesting, but it, it found that 75% of HR leaders and compensation, and compensation professionals think the federal minimum wage should be increased. So it just shows you where that where the head is of, you know, corporate HR folks. By far and away, they think that the minimum wage should be increased. So that's another. But they don't really they don't really give a number of what it. They don't really give a number. Like yeah, they all go yeah, it should be increased from seven twenty five. What does that mean? Seven thirty or is that eleven thirty or is that fifteen thirty? You know what I mean? So it got kind of vague. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think you're going to find too many CEOs or, or corporate leaders aren't going to say yeah, it needs to be raised. It's, it's to what, you know, to what end. So, um, so pretty interesting. Franklin, last December, switching to labor policy, last December, the Congress passed and the president signed the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, outlining a whole new set of protections for uh, pregnant women in the workplace. The EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, kind of pulled the trigger uh, today as we speak, August 10th, on uh, part of the rulemaking process around that legislation. What's going on there? Yeah, and keep in mind, we have a fully seated EUC Democrat majority um, as of recently, you know, for the first time in the in the Biden administration era. So um, expect to see a lot more EOC items being reported out of on top items. But yeah, so we have a notice of proposed rulemaking um, and it, you know, this will potentially impact how employers have to accommodate uh, employees that, you know, um, are, are pregnant or have kind of a work-related limitation connected to a pregnancy. And so um, the proposed rule applies to employers with at least 15 employees, uh, government agencies, labor unions, federal government. They're not yet final, but they're going to be popping out soon. And then there'll be a um, kind of comment period. And then, you know, we go into the, the, final, the final rule. So that comment period closes on October 10th, I think. 60 Joe, days, I mean, from, 60 days yeah. from August 10th. Yeah. So, yep. So, so it's time to review this, you know, review the proposed rules kind of as they're outlined and, and weigh in um, if you, if you feel inclined to do so. I'm sure the trade groups will be going through this and we'll probably have some action alerts out um, shortly if there's any items that, that they're worried about impacting employers and operators. Uh, Frank, I'm switching gears to uh, the labor activism space. Our good friends at Starbucks are in the news uh, again this week, one on a court challenge and one on a kind of a national day of action that got hardly any press at all. But uh, the, the, important, the important piece is the uh, U.S. appellate court decision uh, that didn't kind of go Starbucks way this week. The Memphis 7, man, we're still talking about the Memphis 7. Um, this was a... a a big case at the time, I guess it is still a big case, but um, so uh, the U.S. appeals court rejected the company's challenge to an earlier ruling requiring the coffee chain to rehire uh, 
seven employees at a Memphis, Tennessee store who were allegedly fired for supporting a union. Um, the decision by the appeals court is the first from the appeals court involved in the nationwide campaign and has seen workers at more than 345 locations vote to unionize. So uh, previously, the the three-judge panel uh, had said that firing the workers last year, Starbucks, basically discourage other workers from exercising their labor right and, and kind of created a, um, a sense of a fear of retaliation within the workplace. Um, rewinding the tape here, Joe, the Memphis Seven, essentially what they did is they went into the store after hours with a TV crew. And so Starbucks uh, fired the workers for that and, and probably for other things too. And the workers basically said that, you know, the company hadn't been forceful and enforced kind of that after hours policy before and was firing them as retaliation. And it's been litigated forever now. And so this is kind of a big, I guess, a big precedenting precedent setting case in this uh, campaign. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to break the company's way. And, we, and we've talked on the pod, you know, a couple of times lately how, you know, Jennifer Bruzo wants to get cases into court and get get legal precedents that she can pursue uh, with with more <laughs> with more abandon her uh, her agenda. So uh, kind of a big win for the NLRB uh, this week regarding employee retaliation for unionizing. Mr. Coley, another big issue that we've talked about at length, and hopefully uh, next week we'll have a uh, get a national overview on this sustainability, this pregnant pig issue. Uh, from the folks at the Port Council, hopefully next week on this podcast. But Massachusetts, our buddy Steve Clark, head of the MRA up there, Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and his colleagues cut a deal, or I guess the federal judge involved in the case uh, approved their compromise with the state on this issue. So what's going on in, in, in Massachusetts? So the concern was essentially when the Supreme Court ruled, there was kind of a gap between the ruling and and you know, the law taking effect. And so no one could figure out, you know, if if the pork that was already on the market was going to, the rules were going to apply to it. Were, they, were people going to buy a bunch of pork and then have to throw it out because it didn't, um, it didn't, you know, meet the the standard of the, the rules that, you know, were allowed to go into effect by the Supreme Court. So the law uh, will now, after the settlement take effect August 24th. So go grab your bacon now, baby, because there's a rush on, on bacon and meat and eggs and veal and pork and about everything else. So anything that is bought before August 24th does not, is not subject to these, um, you know, expansive, onerous, however you want to characterize it, uh, requirements that have been set forth and anything after the 24th is going to be subject to uh, those requirements. And so, Joe, pack that freezer, my friend. Well, um, you know, I think kudos to, 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 to Steve Clark and the MRA. I mean, this thing was passed by the voters in 2016. Uh, they've been, you know, working for seven years to to mitigate and, and, and minimize the, the impact on the industry and, and the consumers as well, but the restaurant owners. And I think the state and the business community came to a workable compromise. This was not some legislative loss in the, uh, in the legislature back then. It was a voter, you know, voter ballot initiative. So kudos to them uh, for, uh, you know, forging this compromise and giving uh, restaurants and retailers time to assimilate and, uh, you know, adapt to this, this new law. So a lot going on and hopefully next week, Franklin, we'll have uh, uh, folks from the national port council on to kind of give us a national overview on this place, on the space. Franklin, uh, last item here, uh, our old friends at target are feeling some more heat getting sued by a conservative legal foundation about their diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. What's going on there? Yeah. So, um, American vs. Legal, it's kind of staffed by uh, former uh, Trump administration officials, sued the company that it, uh, I'm just going to quote this directly, that the retailer misrepresented the risk 
and kind of consumer backlash to the LGBTQ issues that played out. So here's the deal. Here's the next phase of this kind of woke company fight that we're seeing play out in uh, in Florida and other places around the country. And it's, you know, a company goes woke, quote unquote, and it's stock falls. And so now, and, and you know, in a lot of like a lot of cases that means state pensions are impacted and now the investor class there's there's a movement to get the investor class to go after these companies for basically you know going off course and 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 acting imprudently and jeopardizing the company's profit and investors return on their investment and so that's what's happening here with target this is an attack along those lines you're seeing other attacks kind of lining up like this around Anheuser-Busch and others where, you know, the argument is due to these kind of woke policies, these policies that, that drifted away from return on investment to investors, the, the CEO and the executives were acting inappropriately um, and not representing the stockholders. And, you know, the stockholders should be able to take action against them for that. And so that's that's what's at play here, Joe. I suspect we're going to see more and more of this. Yeah, kind of interesting. What, what caught my eye on the whole issue is not only suing the company, but naming as defendants the CEO himself and the board of directors personally. So uh, pretty aggressive. Uh, probably, you know, the intent, obviously, is to have a chilling effect on other companies. Uh, we'll see how Target uh, reacts to it and uh, how it how it gets covered going forward. So. Uh, like I say, my friend, a busy week, uh, even though it wasn't a very busy week. A lot of state legislatures gone, people on vacation, but still uh, that little ball keeps on bouncing uh, in the legislative and regulatory space. And we're, as always, here to report it. Well, my friend, uh, another week, another pod, our 300th pod. Um, but we've been uh, we've been busy out on the roads of America the last few weeks. Mr. Coley, I happen to have the privilege, the pleasure and the privilege of spending some great time with the board of directors of both the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association uh, meeting up in beautiful Mackinac Island, Michigan, as well as the board of directors of the California uh, Restaurant Association. And, you know, when you if, if you're doing a good job speaking, you walk away having learned a lot. And those are two states that um, are are not uh, unfamiliar with legislative fracases and the uh, leadership of both those organizations. Pretty astute group of characters. I, I, I really enjoyed uh, spending time with them. Mackinac Island to Catalina Island. You, 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 we appreciate you in the front lines there, Joe, for the, for the industry. It's, uh, it's tough, man. It's tough, but we appreciate your commitment, your many decades commitment to resorting, <laughs> resorting your way, resorting your way to protect. California was not in Catalina Island, but it was in beautiful, you know, Anaheim and was, they've done a great job with, Kind of modernizing Anaheim. It doesn't look anything like it did 25 years ago. So they've really done a nice job of uh, revitalization. Franklin yeah, was not not Catalina Island, but yeah. but still, yeah. No, it was really it was a really nice nice program. They did a great job. Um, you know, so kudos to, to Justin Winslow and, and, and Jack Condy for the great organizations they run. Franklin, you would have loved it. Uh, it's either Saturday or Sunday morning uh, at my hotel, um, six thirty Union. Drums banging, bullhorns going, unite here, protests, 6.30 weekend morning. It was phenomenal. Yeah, they had- I love a good protest. That's that's how you know you're you're at a good event. If you don't have protesters there, you might as well not even be there. It doesn't really matter. You know if you've got protesters there that there's stuff happening and being discussed that matters. So I love a good protest. I, I'm not. I, I love to walk through the protesters, chat them up. Um, sometimes they're there protesting me. I got no problem with it. Um, you know, th- this is America, baby. I love to see it. Uh, this. Let's get. Well, I happen to be. I happen to be outside. It was about six in the morning because you know your time change is is messed up and. I'm out there trying to have some coffee and wake up and I see these cars start start pulling up and van doors start opening and out come all the 
t-shirts and I was amazed by how many hotel employees wearing their hotel uniforms joined in. It's like, baby, it's California, man. You got to love California. And we've been talking about these hotel wages and the $30. We were right in the middle of it. So it was, it was, it was kind of fun. Franklin, um, talking about other conferences, uh, this next week, I believe in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana, home of Patrick Tam in the Indiana Restaurant Hospitality Association. Franklin National Conference of State Legislatures will be convening. It will. And it's always a great event. I actually, you know, I love NCSL because there's so many policy panels and there's you can usually just wander into a panel on a totally different topic. You never really work on and and learn a lot. So I love NCSL, not for the the after hours networking piece. Um, I love it for the the nerd out policy side. Um, and uh, I'm sad to be missing it, uh, but I'm sure it will be a great one. There's not a lot of our issues in the agenda this year. The one, the one biggie, which it seems like it's in the agenda of every single conference that's going on anywhere is labor issues and, you know, the labor crunch and, and all that. Workforce development issues. Workforce development. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's deciding, decidedly not a um, industry-led panel at NCSL. It's kind of framed up as, you know, lowering the bar and lowering protections. And, you know, it's, it's probably going to be a little, little hostile towards us. But, um, you know, there's other stuff on the agenda, Joe. There's, um, you know, recycling on the agenda. It's always kind of finds its way into the agenda. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things. Everyone um, should give a look through the agenda just to see if anything uh, strikes you. And maybe we'll have, uh, if there's anything groundbreaking that occurs, Joe, we'll, we'll of course have one of our folks on that's in attendance come give us a, a debrief. But uh, it looks like a relatively mild conference uh, for our, our listeners. Yeah, one one interesting uh, issue that that you talked about workforce development. I the, uh, saw a headline this week that the Labor Department has entered into kind of a working arrangement with the National Governors Association to help the fifty states kind of modernize some of their criterion for workforce development and competitive. You know, getting workers more competitive for the work the workspace. I thought it was kind of super interesting. I'm sure that'll be on the topic at NCSL. So, all right, my friend. Well, uh, that is our pod for the week. Uh, I guess I should. Get a lot of people to thank, but I'll start by thanking you uh, for all the work you put into this pod, 300 episodes worth. We got to thank folks like Sean Kelly, who got us started, Sarah Lockyer, Sarah Lockyer, who put us on the air, the great team, Indeed. Jonathan Hayes and Peter Romeo at Restaurant Business and Winsight, uh, and so many of the great guests. We had two of the best today. We've had so much uh, participation and, and help on this and getting experts to help us think through some of these issues. So, we are thankful let, for all let of us, them. Let us, let us not let us not forget Aloha Joe. I mean, what what I mean, what what is a good shout out without a shout out to Mr. Joe Renzel, um, longtime guest, longtime friend, yeah. of the pod. But the most important uh, thank yous go to our listeners uh, for sticking with us and tuning in each week, and we appreciate you. And we will be back next week with another pod. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then.